I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It, it judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One of the verses that's always stood out to me in the Bible is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you know your Bible, uh, you know that this is the story of King David and the story of his affair, his marital affair with Bathsheba, one of his soldiers, one of his top soldiers' wives. And David stood out on a balcony and saw Bathsheba bathing and began to lust after her. These thoughts that he allowed to enter into his mind seeped into his heart and he began to entertain these thoughts so much so that he had, had her brought to him and then had an affair with her and then decided to just kind of go about his way pretending like everything was okay but if you know the story you know everything was not okay she came back with the news that she was pregnant and rather than coming clean he kind of lost his mind and began to tell a lie in fact he tried to entice Uriah to come back from war and to sleep with his wife so that he could say that the child would have been Uriah's, but Uriah's character was stronger than that. When he arrives back, he realizes that he's going to be given privileges that his brothers at war are not given, and he refuses. And so rather than owning it at that moment, David again decided to lie and cover this up, and he sent Uriah to the front lines of the war and told the army to pull back. And leaving him exposed and vulnerable, he was killed. And David decided to cover this up and to bring Bathsheba into his home and make her his wife and 
just play it off as though he had done nothing wrong, thinking that the people will just assume that the child was his and that he had rescued this widow from her plight by making her his wife. But that's not how it ends. If you know the story, you know that there, David is called out on his sin and there are dire consequences, very difficult consequences that he has to deal with for his very bad decision-making. But what stands out to me in that story is not the details of that story. The details of that story are, while they're incredibly difficult to read and understand why someone would do what King David did in that moment, what really stands out to me is the verse that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, and it reads this way, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. See, the spring of the year, kings would go out to battle, and in those days, a king would never lead his military where he wasn't himself willing to go. You see, before we ever get to the major blow-up sin in David's life, we're given an indication that he had some sort of heart disease. That something had gone wrong in his heart before his actions ever followed suit. Something was hardening in his heart. In the spring of the year, when kings go out to war, King David, the king of God's army, King David sent someone else. And it's from that moment we begin to see the hardening of his heart, followed by the poor decision-making and the consequences that follow. See, the hardening of David's heart was difficult, but we're also given this indication that it wasn't easy for him. You see, David began to feel this unrest in his heart after each one of these decisions. His heart began to just not settle. You know that feeling. When something's just not right, you can't sleep at night, it's bugging you, it's bothering you, you know something's not been taken care of and it just begins to eat away at you. This happened to David as well. He gives us a little bit of an indication when he writes in the book of Psalms. He's going to write in the book of Psalms about his year-long battle with this struggle that he had. You see, the book of Psalms is not just a book where we memorize a bunch of poems, it's a, it's a window into the heart of David. And he writes in Psalm chapter 32 about this battle that he was having over this poor decision-making. He says these words, When I kept silent, when I just stayed quiet, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You see, struggling with unrest is nothing new. This uncertainty, this unrest that takes place, sin and difficulty have plagued people since the fall. You see, the closer that you get to sin, the more that you entice sin, the more that you play with sin, the more your heart is unrested. The more your heart is unsettled, the more struggle that you have. It slowly eats away at you. Sin begins to attack your identity. It causes you to question things that you knew were true. You've known something's true, but the further you get from the truth and the more you entertain sin, the harder your heart gets and the more unrest you experience in your life, the less capable you are of recognizing what is true. It hardens your heart to the needs of the people that are around you. David wasn't thinking about Uriah when he was enticing his wife. It creates a storm in your conscience, a battle, a wrestling match that you know something's not right and it's eating you apart keeps you up at night. It holds you captive. You see, what happened to David can happen to any one of us. And we're going to see that in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you can open up. We're going to continue in the series. Before we jump in, though, to chapter 4, I want to remind you of two things that kind of jump out to us that will be really good for you to keep in mind as you're studying through this book. The first is this. Um, The book of Hebrews was written before the printing press. It was written before Bill Gates invented Microsoft Word. 
where you can bold out words and italicize them and underline them and increase the font size to emphasize things. You see, in order to emphasize things here, they had to repeat it over and over and over again. And I don't know if you caught this, but in Dave's wonderful reading of the text just a few moments ago, there was a word that popped out. We'll talk about that word here in just a moment. The second thing I want to remind you is something that David really articulated so beautifully for us last week when he preached on chapter 3. And he emphasized to us that when you read the phrase today, when you hear his word, when you hear, when the Holy Spirit speaks, it was, the Holy Spirit was speaking to a specific audience, these Jewish Christians that this was written to. But because it's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, the Holy Spirit's also speaking to us in this moment. And so the text that spoke so vividly to them is also very, very clearly speaking to us this morning. So keep those two things in mind as we jump in. We're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard, they did not, it did not benefit them because they were not unified by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. If it's repeated, it's what? Important. If it's repeated, it's important. Uh, there's a word that jumps out here uh, five different times. It's referenced six times in the first five verses and multiple more times in the rest of this passage. And what word is it? Rest. The word rest jumps out. And so the question that the text really should ask, one of the first questions if you're just reading through this chapter in your Bible that should really jump out to you is, what does it mean to enter God's rest? What does it mean for us to enter his rest. Now, there's a few things the author tells us about his rest here, just in these first five verses. He tells us, one, that the promise for us to entering, entering his rest still stands today, meaning as we read it, the Holy Spirit speaks to us from this text, this promise that we can enter his rest is very clearly told to us that we can still do that today. That this battle you and I might have with this life, this struggle with sin that we might have to encounter day in and day out, we have this promise that today we can experience the rest of God. It was available to the people in the days of Moses, but they didn't benefit from it because they were disobedient. It tells us that. The third thing it tells us is this. Our hearts can become disobedient just like theirs, and we can miss out on the rest because of our disobedience. And number four, God himself rested, which makes the command for us to rest all the more important. Because if the Creator modeled something for us and then called us to it, we should probably pay attention to that command. But before we jump into really addressing what it means to enter His rest, I want to define the word rest for you. This is pretty fascinating. This really captivated me this past week. Most of us, when we think about rest, we think about what? I don't know what comes to your mind, but when I think about rest, I think about disengaging from everything. I think about a good book, a hammock, a beach, and palm trees. Anybody with me? <laughs> Especially today, right? Right, you weren't ready for this either. Don't, you know I wasn't ready for it, but I, I have a feeling. Now, I won't start whining about it. I got called out on that a few months ago, but in the ancient world, uh, rest, though, was not about disengaging from things. It wasn't about, like, not doing anything. It wasn't about uh, not having any responsibility. See, in the ancient world, this concept of rest, it, it took place when a conflict was resolved. 
So when like strife or difficulty ended, real rest began, but it wasn't about not doing anything. It was about engaging in things without fear or anxiety or struggle or difficulty. One author said it this way, biblical rest is more a matter of engagement without obstacles rather than disengagement without responsibilities. You see, it was about engaging in things that are fulfilling to us without obstacles, without the sin struggle, without the unrest that our heart experiences. It wasn't about not doing anything and having no responsibility, as much as many of us would probably that be the case. The passage here references though, that God rested on the seventh day. So now it calls us to do that. So what does it mean when God rested? Because if that's the rest we're to enter, the rest that he participated in himself. Now this word rest, it comes from the Hebrew word sabbat. Everybody say sabbat. It's where the, the other word that we understand, Sabbath, comes from, right? Sabbath, it literally means to cease, to stop. And so this idea of rest has one connotation, meaning cease, stop doing something, stop engaging in something. But this ceasing leads to a new state that's described by the Hebrew word nuha. Everybody say nuha. I don't know if we said it right, but we said it together, okay? <laughs> so... God ceases from working on creation. This is what it says. God ceases from working on his creation after six days of creating. But then he knew how. He, he enters into a new activity. Meaning, picture it this way, God stopped working on creating everything and then came down into the garden to enjoy it. And he came down into the garden to walk with man and to experience relationship. See, he's not being lazy. He's not sleeping. He's engaging. He stopped one activity to engage in a new one. See, in the Old Testament, rest revolved around engaging in normal activities of life. Meaning you can get to the normal activities without fear. So if, a, if a people went to war and they were battling, you're not going to go out and tend to the garden. If you've got an invading army coming in, you're not going to take care of uh, doing the dishes and washing clothes and raising your family. You see, this is about uh, something ceases. You're no longer having the fear of somebody coming in and stopping. You're no longer having the fear of having an unrested heart that's battling with sin. And now you can engage in normal activities, like being together as a family, raising your family, spending time with the people that you love, tending to the everyday activities. Think about it this way. When you bought your computer, most of you have a computer. Jerry, maybe you don't, but everybody else does. Uh, I'm going to hear about that, too. Uh, <laughs> it only works in first service. Uh, when you bought a computer, okay, you got it out of the box. You plugged it in. You made sure that all the apps and the programs were downloaded. right? You made sure that your Wi-Fi connection was secure. You made sure that your shared files were in place, that all your pictures got uploaded. And then you stopped engaging in the setup activity. And you began to actually use the computer without worrying about having to set it up anymore, without worrying about having to do any of that. Now you've ceased one activity, the setup, and now you've engaged in a new activity, the enjoyment of using that computer. This is what it means to rest. See, we're able to disengage from the tasks and enter a place of safety and security where we can engage in life the way it was intended to be lived. This is why Jesus got so much flack from the Pharisees. You see, when you, watch the, when you look at the life of Jesus, um, the Pharisees would teach that you had to do nothing on the Sabbath. And they were really watchdogs. They had the law that taught about the Sabbath. They had these other traditions they'd added to make sure you didn't break the law. And they would come in and they'd say, you can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. You can't pick up that on the Sabbath. You can't do that on the Sabbath. The safest place you could be on the Sabbath from a Pharisee was in a padded room with a blindfold on. Because you weren't allowed to do anything. Well, then Jesus comes along. And all of a sudden, what's Jesus doing on the Sabbath? Well, he's healing on the Sabbath. 
We watch him heal people. And there's this one day where Jesus is walking through a field with his disciples, and they pick off the head of grain and eat. And that was completely against uh, the Pharisees' rules. And the question's asked, like, what, what, is, what is going on here? Well, you see, the Pharisees were focused on this religious activity of Sabbath, this you cannot do, you cannot do, you cannot do. Jesus was about, no, no, Sabbath is about what you can do. See, it's about being finished with certain things and engaging in life with God the way you're supposed to. See, for Jesus, Sabbath was not about laziness. Rest was not about completely disengaging from everybody and everything. Side note, this, this is why I think that we're going to have work in heaven. Some of you are like, that's it, I'm done, right? <laughs> we're done, heresy, right? You're like, I thought the Monday morning feeling was going to go away forever, and it is. It is. But I think we're going to work in heaven based on the Bible's understanding of the word rest. You see, to rest means to engage in activities that are fulfilling and life-giving without fear, without fear of harm or anxiety or worry. You see, when we get to heaven, it won't be about going to work and fulfilling uh, some task for somebody else, and it just drains you and leaves you worn out, and when Friday gets here, you can't wait, and then you engage in Sunday night's the worst night because Monday's coming. That's not the kind of work that we engage in in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, you engage in work that is fulfilling and life-giving, and you can't wait to get to the next thing because it fulfills you in a way that nothing else has fulfilled you. You see, that's what rest is. It is working in the kingdom of God for the king, engaging with him and his people in his creation without fear of any kind of sin causing unrest in your heart. This is why it's important. See, the Bible teaches that when you were saved, when you became a Christian, that you were saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? But it also teaches us that right now, sin is still all around us. And so right now, as a Christian, you are being saved. So you were saved from the penalty of sin. You're being saved by the, from the power of sin. So sin is losing its power in your life the more you mature in Christ. Every step closer to Jesus that you take, in your life, you're being saved by the, the sin loses its power on you the closer you get to the one who saved you. So you were saved. That's when you were justified. You're being saved, right? That, that's, that is uh, when we're sanctified. So that's when we're getting closer to Jesus and sin's losing its power. But sin's still here, friends. And real godly rest can be tasted here but not fully experienced. That's going to happen when we get to heaven. Because when we get to heaven, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Sin will be completely gone. It won't even be around us anymore. So you were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. And when we are saved, then we engage in activities that are so fully life-giving. I love the way Nancy Guthrie says it. She says this, Biblical rest is living life the way God intended life to be. See, biblical rest. That you can, look, the, the text just told us that you can experience this right now in your life. Like right now, you can experience this. You can get a taste of it. The closer you get to Jesus, the, the less fear you have of death, the less fear you have of worrying about the, the everyday tasks and the repercussions they have. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you recognize your own sin and confess it and experience healing. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more you experience the rest of God, this fulfilling, life-giving, purposeful life that God intended for you to live. Now this brings back to my mind Jesus and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus was focused on this relationship that you have with God, this becoming more and more who he's created you to be. Every day he's shaping you and molding you. I like to say it this way. You've heard me say it this way. Every day with Jesus, he is shaping you and forming you into who he needs you to be in order to do what he needs you to do. Every day you're getting closer to your purpose. Every day you take a step closer to him. And so Jesus was focused on this, where the Pharisees are focused on religious activity, meaning 
here's what it means to be a good Christian. You do this, you don't do that. And look, there's some validity to things that we should engage in and things that we shouldn't engage in. But the motive of the heart is what's really a key here. It's really the key of this passage. Am I wanting to get closer to the one who has given me life, who can bring rest to my, uh, my unrest, who can calm down my nerves, who can take from me the anxiety that sin has given to me, who can give me confidence in who I am while sin is making me doubt every day who I was created to be. You see, I think the world needs this message. So it brings to life when Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. The world just weighs down on you. And I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? For your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, it brings all new meaning to this idea of the rest that Jesus provides for us. He continues, the author of Hebrews continues here with this promise of entering his rest, but it comes with a little bit of a warning. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, and he says this today, meaning for us today, right now, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He's quoting from Psalm 95, where the same King David we talked about, who had unrest in his heart, wanted to experience the rest of God. He's making this point, saying if you hear this today, This is available to you today. This rest where sin has plagued you, where the burdens of this world have weighed down on your life, down on your shoulders and in your heart, where where depression and a lack of confidence and questioning your identity set in today, if you'll hear his voice, he will soften your heart. For if Joshua, verse 8, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Look, obedience is a hard thing to talk about in the American church. It just is. And we can get up here and say it with confidence and I can blast you with it and all that. But but at the end of the day, we, we struggle to obey. We love to think of Jesus as our Savior and we should because he is the only reason we can be saved. But the Bible's clear. He's not just your Savior, He's your Lord. And we're all in the same boat here, every single one of us. Every one of us. We're all in this together where we have to appreciate His saving grace but submit to His Lordship as well. That means it's His way, not mine. That means it's life lived the way He wants it to be lived, not mine. That means when I desperately want to control the outcome, when I want to just work harder to achieve a goal, I need to recognize that that goal... And working harder aren't bad things, but if they get me further from him, my heart will get harder. But if I'll submit to him and live life the way he's called me to live, then he'll soften my heart and give me rest. See, I find it fascinating. I meet with people all the time. I have conversations. All, I mean, just this past week, three different people I had conversations with who are struggling with submission, submitting to the Lord. 
because they want to find peace and all these other things, and they're working so hard to create it. I mean, it is not for a lack of effort. They're putting everything they have into creating something, whether it's finding that right spouse or whether it's getting enough money to get the next thing, and they're just going after these things, and they're, they're starting to recognize that no matter how hard they work, no matter what they do, there's still this unrest that can't be cured. And I'm trying to explain to them, it's really simple. It's Jesus. He said, come to me. Don't go to those things. Come to me, and I'll give you rest for your soul. But that's difficult for us. And the text here tells us the way that we submit to him primarily is we hear from him. And how do we hear from him, church? Primary way he communicates to us is what? It's God's word. He's going to speak to us here. The Holy Spirit will speak to your heart and your mind. He will transform your entire life the more time you spend here. This, too, is very difficult. We live in an age where we can chop up verses and we can take one verse and just focus on it. And we can say, I'm not a reader. I don't like reading. I don't. But look, you can have the Bible read to you. And if you want something bad enough, you will go after it. If you want to experience the rest he's offered you, you need to spend time in his word. Because here's the thing. In order to obey him, you have to hear from him. But you cannot obey a God that you're not connected to. It will become religious activity and you'll look like a Pharisee with a hardened heart. Here's what I know about each and every one of us, no matter where you're at, that you will always obey the voice that's loudest in your life. The voice that's loudest, the one that speaks the most, is the one you will obey. You will always obey the voice that you are exposed to the most. You will always. I had a kid in my class, I teach a, a worldview class, and I had a kid ask me this question. He said, how do I make the Bible and my conversations feel more natural? I thought it was a great question. He said, it always feels like it's stale bringing it up. And so my response to that was, what's your favorite football team? He's like, what? I said, just answer the question. He answered. I said, that's the wrong answer, but let's talk about it. And we began to talk through why he likes his football team, and he started getting into it, and we started talking about it, and he was telling me this and telling me that. I said, you see how natural that was? It's because you love football. You spend a lot of time studying football. You watch a lot of football. You want the Bible to feel natural. You need to make it natural. You need to spend more time in it. It needs to become a part of who you are. You can't fake it. And you're, I told him, you're experiencing people reading through the fact that you don't read it. You want it to feel natural. You need to connect to him. It needs to be the loudest voice in your life. It just does. That means my voice shouldn't be the loudest. Or any other podcast shouldn't be the loudest. Or any other Christian book shouldn't be the loudest. The loudest voice in your life, if you want to experience the rest of God, should be the Word of God. And you need to spend time with it. We need to be exposed to and exhorted by the Word of God. Look at how he closes out in verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, meaning right now it is active, it is living, and here's what it can do to your heart. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? There's nothing else in life that can do this. It pierces to the division of your soul and spirit. It gets to the root of the problem every single time. Now look at that word soul. It pierces to the soul. What did Jesus say? If you'll listen to me, I will give you rest for what? Your soul. Through the piercing of your soul and your, your spirit, joints and marrow, the discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, meaning you're not going to hide anything from him. You might as well come clean. He knows everything anyway. You confessing is sometimes about you owning and submitting to his lordship. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Look, we need to be exposed to his word, so it's the most important, loudest voice in our life, but we need to be exhorted to his word too, meaning the people around us. You, look, I've said this to students all the time, and I, I will, if parent, use this. Take it and run with it. It's not original with me. Just take it and run with it. If you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Every time. 
What I mean by that is this. It's not your friends are just really good people. It means when you have a struggle, what are they using to give you wisdom? What are they using to direct your life? What are they using to call out your sin? It's got to be the Word of God, not the principles of a preacher. They have to be using God's Word to exhort you. God's Word needs to be the thing you're exposed to the most. Let me drive it home this way. I got a call two weeks ago from somebody. And there's this uh, family that I, that, I was, uh, that I knew that was very involved in ministry. And they moved pretty far away where there's no uh, personal, physical relationship anymore. But I get a call with a third party asking for advice on how to help this couple. This person, the husband had been caught in some sin, but he was denying it, refusing to acknowledge it. The wife had had enough. There was going to be a separation. And they're calling to ask me, hey, what do we do? So as we begin to talk and peel back the layers, the it kind of revealed to me, who is it that will exhort them with the word of God? And the answer came back, there's no one. Like, they're involved in a church, and they're helping with a ministry, but there's nobody directly connected to them that will come and exhort them with God's word, with God's truth, call them out, and call them to a higher standard. They don't have that in their life. My response was, they need it. I don't know how we can help them without it. They need to be exposed to and exhorted with the word of God because it's the thing that will pierce the heart. On the flip side, I walked with a family through a lot of heartache and struggle a few years ago. Deep struggle, deep pain. I mean, multiple nights of crying together and going through really, really hard times. On the other end of that, because they made themselves vulnerable and open, though things were different with the family, the people that we, we, we talk to them and they say this, we've experienced freedom we've never experienced in our lives before. And I love this. The husband said this. I don't feel like I have anything to hide anymore. I don't have anything to lie about. You remember Mark Twain? He said, if you just tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> There's a real freedom that comes in the rest of God when you're fully known and you can just say, yeah, like I got nothing to hide. I don't have to fake it and pretend to be something that I'm not. Let me circle back as we close out this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's a character that enters the scene. In the midst of David's struggle and difficulty, someone walks in, and it's a close friend. His name's Nathan. And see, Nathan cared enough about David to know that he couldn't just come in and blast him, so he told him a story. Like putty in his hands. David's like, what? Really? Next? The story ends with a guy committing an injustice against another guy, and David said, that guy should die. And Nathan said, David... That's you. You're the guy. You're not living the way God wants you to live. Your heart's gotten hard and you're separated. You're distancing yourself from him and God wants to give you rest. God wants you to experience real rest in your life, David. But you've got to submit. You've got to give up. You've got to stop controlling everything. And it's going to be a bumpy ride and it's going to be hard, but at the end of the day, it's going to be so fulfilling and you'll be free from struggling with this unrest to engage in life the way God wants you to live it. Close out with the words of David in a very famous psalm. I want you to think about these words as we close out today. And after I'm done, I'm going to pray. and We're going to enter into a time of response. And if you need rest, we'd love to talk to you and pray with you this morning. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness and for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life.